Are you a defense financial manager looking to invest in your career? Attend PDI, the Professional Development Institute in Phoenix, Arizona, May 29th to 31st. PDI is the premier annual training event for the DFM community. Register today at PDI2024.org. Early bird rates end April 30th. This is Carla Johnson, co-author of Experiences, the seventh era of marketing, and you are listening to Authors in Quarantine, Getting Cocktails. Hello and welcome to this hopefully short-lived series that will be airing in addition to the weekly marketing book podcast interviews. I'm your host, Douglas Burdett, and my goal during this unusual time is to reconnect you with past guests on the Marketing Book Podcast, share some ideas and inspiration, and maybe a much-needed laugh or two. I've interviewed over 200 authors on the show, and my plan is to continue this series until I either run out of authors or quarantine, whichever comes first. A word of warning, the host and guest may very likely be drinking cocktails during these conversations. I mean, come on, they are recorded during the cocktail hour. To find the show notes for each episode with pictures of each guest and links mentioned in their conversation, visit marketingbookcocktails.com marketingbookcocktails.com. See what I did there? And if you'd like to join the conversation, email a voice recording to me at douglas at salesartillery.com and I'll try to include it in a future episode. I'd love to hear from you. Otherwise, connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat. Carla Johnson, welcome to Authors in Quarantine Getting Cocktails. How are you? I'm doing great. There's nobody else I would rather be having cocktails in quarantine with than you. Oh. So thanks for having me today. Oh, please don't stop. Virtually. (laughs) (laughs) Don't. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. And so I uh, should say that what I've been doing in this fun series is the authors who've been on the Marketing Book Podcast have you know, taking pity on me and more importantly, taking pity on my family because they know that my family really um, doesn't really want to talk to me all day long. So uh, (laughs) I reached out to folks who've been on the podcast and you actually have not been on the podcast, so I didn't want to bother you, but you came to me and said, hey, I can come on. (laughs) I thought, well, no, let's let's move you, these you other authors the, aside. <laughs> you had the key criteria, and that you had cocktails in the name of the podcast. So that's, that's a, why I hunted you down. Well, you know, whatever it takes. And um, <laughs> I'm not sure some of these authors really know who they're talking to, but they are having cocktails. And you know, you have to appeal to to whatever it is their their motivations are. So now, where are you in Colorado? I am. Uh, we are back in Denver. Okay. So what what happened? Uh, now you're there with your your family and your husband. Um, did you all what 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 suddenly happened? What 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 plans got changed? So we had spent we took a year and we moved to Spain, and our intention was to go definitely for a year. And if we could convince the kids to stay, we would stay longer. But our oldest was a or is um, a senior in high school. And so we decided to come back so she could finish her senior year with her friends in Denver, you know, assuming she would be able to go to school all year long and see her friends and be a part of school activities. And then our little hiccup that we're in the midst of came along and changed all those plans. And and now we're all back to working from home and school online and everything that they did while we were in Spain, just here in Denver. So you came home from your year in Spain before this uh pandemic started, right? 
We did. We came back the first part of August. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, well, you know, I'd like to. So we had it- about four days, four days before uh, the kids started school and a frantic unpacking and trying to find some things and. Yeah. Well, you know, I like to think of myself as a Carla Johnson stalker on social media, but I clearly was oh. <laughs> not doing the right thing. And um, I- explain that. What 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 happens when a, a a family just says, "Hey, let's go to Spain for a year." <laughs> What was that all well, about? I, 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 and I enjoyed seeing all I, the pictures you posted on social media. It was really something. It, it was spectacular. And I have to say, I highly recommend it to anybody who's ever thinking of taking time, either for a sabbatical and to go travel or um, to do like we did and, and take a year and live in another country or live out of a backpack for a year. I think a year is a good amount of time. Um, I will tell you, the inspiration may have started with a cocktail in hand with my husband and I. Um, oh, wait, so I should 20- interrupt. Tell us what you are drinking, because when I, I uh, took your picture, I, I saw something that reminded me of some of the finer uh, Spanish restaurants I've been to. Exactly. I am drinking a very nice glass of sangria. And um, it's it was a drink I came to really like when we were in Spain. And there's also a version that's called Sangria de Cava. And Cava is Spain's version of the Italian Prosecco or the, the French Champagne. And it's really a nice, light, refreshing drink. So that's what I was drinking. And um, Well, that just went on my uh, uh, wine store list, so... Thank you. To drink, to, 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 to drink this. I have to do a um, lot of research in preparing for each one of these interviews. So, you know, you've just added to my uh, my work list. But, you know, Carla, I suffer you're, you're from like, my art. You're you like your store. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So how um, did, the, what is this drink yeah. and how did it get you to Spain? We, uh, it's a traditional drink that a lot of people in Spain um, are known to drink. Now there's probably more tourists who may drink it than actual local Spanish people, but it's um, red wine. The version I have is red wine, some sparkling sodas, a little bit of sugar and different kinds of fruits and just, um, you know, like some oranges and uh, raspberries, apples, you know, things like that, that you throw in a lot of ice and it's wonderful to drink by the pitcher on, I would say any kind of day, but especially when it's hot out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I like yeah. to drink it right out of the pitcher, but when I've been to restaurants, they <laughs> ask me to use the glass just because it kind of freaks the other uh, patrons out. But you were starting to tell us about how a certain drink brought you all to Spain. <laughs> it, w- it was actually red wine, Spanish red wine, a Tempranillo. And, um, and there's a little bit more of a backstory to even to this story. And that is 20 years ago, my husband and I were sitting on the back porch of our house in Omaha. We lived in Omaha then drinking wine. And I think it somehow came up as a dare that we would quit our jobs and leave Omaha and go pack backpack around South America for a year. And I, I, I don't know how well you know me, but I'm highly competitive and my husband likes to provoke that and I didn't want to lose. So I, I actually got up off the chair on the back porch, went to the phone, called the airlines and booked flights from Omaha to Quito, Ecuador, just to prove that I, I believed what I was saying. And so the next day we wake up and said, now, did that really happen? And called the airlines and sure enough, we had tickets. So we uh, took off. We spent a year backpacking around around South America, and it was, as you can imagine, it was so much fun. Um, and it was it was pre internet or you know 
pre smartphones and yeah. all of those things. We we could find cafes and that were internet cafes that had rows of computers and we could email and keep in touch then. But you know, like no social media. So I didn't have any anyone to stock my travels in, Doug, I'll tell you that. So this I have to say this last year was was much better. But after that trip, my husband and I said, when we have kids, we want to do the same kind of thing with kids. And did and he dare because, you this time or did he know better? He, he didn't he actually didn't have to. He didn't have to. And uh you know, I work for myself so I can work anywhere. And he doesn't work for companies, uh, big enough companies or multinational companies um, to be assigned someplace overseas. So it uh, a, another evening of having some nice red wine. And uh, we decided that it, if we were going to do it with all of our kids, it had to be then or we would at least lose our oldest because she'd be off to college and have her own life. And so we said, all right, well, it's now or never. So that's what we decided that we would um, pack up the kids and we rented our house for a year and and we took off and we started in, in Barcelona. Andy Crestadina had introduced me to the folks who run a university there and I um, was a program director for their digital marketing program. So I taught there um, some two and three week classes for the first few months we were in Spain. And then after that, we you know meandered our way around Spain and different parts of Europe and before you knew it, the year was up, and here we are back in Denver. But it was it was just it was as amazing of an experience that people could ever imagine about it. It was just everything I had hoped for and more. And your children will talk about it for the rest of their lives. Absolutely, absolutely. And um, you know, it's one of those things where they had never had this kind of experience to you know pull up roots. I mean, we've always lived in the same house since they were born and, you know, same neighbors and that kind of thing around us. So it was really an uprooting for them, but it was wonderful to watch them, um, you know, explore and really take the places where we lived and make them their own home. I think that we all have a real special heart place in our heart for Barcelona Mm. and, and uh, it, it, it's been great. And now that we're back, we, we just all have so many things to reminisce about. And, and I can really see how it's affected them to do this at, at that kind of an age. It's been, yeah. It's- and, you know, uh, Carl, I can't tell you how many times I've had too much to drink and started buying international airplane <laughs> tickets myself. <laughs> I know. It's, it's like a chronic problem I'm hearing. <laughs> I know. I, even since I started this series on uh, authors in quarantine getting cocktails, um, yeah, the, the airlines, fortunately, a lot of the airlines are grounded, and so they won't take my money. But I <clears throat> started to think I was the only one that did that sort of thing. But um, <laughs> well, well, now I'm sure there's been such a demand that they, that they say, okay, we'll hold this for 24 hours, and, and then you call back tomorrow, and then we'll. You know, when, when Doug calls that many days in a row trying to buy airline tickets, they, they catch on after a while. They do, and they've been messaging my wife saying, uh, Mrs. Burdett, your husband is at it again. So, you know, if you could just uh, <laughs> kind of restrict his internet access, that would probably be a good idea. Idea. We're here to help in this <laughs> pandemic time. Um, now, did you, uh, in the news, which I, I actually, you know what, I watch less, I, I don't watch news, but I, I follow it even less and less and less, and I, maybe it's a coping mechanism, um, but I did, I have heard about how Spain, like Italy, has really been struggling with this. Have you heard from any folks that you, uh, any friends you made in Spain about how they're doing? We have, we've, um, 
um, had video calls with our friends and I'm still real close with some of my students. And I, I actually talked to one of my students yesterday and they're still in quarantine and their kind of quarantine is so much stricter than it is here. And when you leave your house or your apartment, you can go to the grocery store, the pharmacy, um, and anything else you need to have papers to show why you are out. And even to go to, to those two things, you need to sh- have proof of where it is that you live because the police want to monitor how far you are away from home. Um, and it's it's really sad, and I can understand the it, it's a hard situation because it has just crushed the economy there like it has here, you know, even more so because the level of cases that they've had there was so much stronger. Um, and it's, uh, it's a country that we came to love because of the energy and the vivaciousness and the, you know, the socialization of people. And now to see how much it's just had to be shut down because of the situation really, really is heartbreaking. Mm, yeah. Well, I'm sure that they appreciate uh, hearing from you and, and keeping in touch. And again, it's something your children are, you know, uh, super aware of having having been there and known these people, and they'll probably always follow news from from Spain and, and overseas uh, with a new lens. I know I lived overseas in Germany for three years, and it just when I was younger and uh, right out of college, and it just changed my perspective forever. I, I learned so much and saw things from a different angle, and had you know deeper interests and uh, you know the places that I'd lived and the places I'd visited. But unfortunately, I never went to Spain, but I do want to say hello. I just heard from another listener in Spain. There's a number of uh, listeners in Spain uh, who listen to the Marketing Book Podcast, and I saw that there was an article just written in Spanish. It was a roundup of their favorite podcasts, and the Marketing Book Podcast was on there, so I'm so very sorry I don't do it in Spanish. <laughs> but uh, Oh, that's fabulous. That's fabulous. Well, as you can tell, the people in Spain have amazing taste, so... Well, you know, they, thank you. They know a good thing when they see it. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. I have to get a little bit trivial here. My daughter is home from, she was a senior, came home from college, and they said, don't come back. She came like for spring break, and like so many yeah. students. And uh, then they said, uh, we can't do the graduation ceremony either. We're going to send your things home and so forth. But she is a big fan of uh, Whit Stillman. His movies, uh, Metropolitan and Last Days of Disco, and the movie Barcelona. Did you ever see that movie? I don't know that. I'll have to look for that. Yeah, I'll I'll include a link to articles about him and that. But there's this movie, and it must have been 20-some years ago, and it was about these young Americans in Barcelona. So I'll... uh, you know, if you've got time, uh, I think you can rent it on Amazon or something like that. But you might get a kick out of it if no for no other reason that you would um, recognize uh, so much uh, that's there. And it's also about their take on the culture. And it's it was just kind of a really weird, not a weird, but a very interesting niche, uh, uh, you know, independent movie. And he tends to make movies about like waspy people and how they're all uh-huh. becoming dinosaurs. And he went to Harvard and it's just really... Uh, Interesting. So I'll, I'll include a link on your episode's show notes, which everyone can access at marketingbookcocktails.com. See what I did there, Carla? I like how you just <laughs> slid right into that. You're good, Doug. Well, nobody bought that domain. So for me, it was a sign that I needed to start doing this little series. And I hope it won't last forever because I'm going to do it until I either run out of authors 
or I run out of quarantine, whichever comes first. Maybe, so. maybe when the quarantine as we know it passes, we just redefine what quarantine means and and you can continue with your liquor store runs and airline ticket buying. And, <laughs> it and, uh, all sounds like a good idea. Yeah, what could go wrong? And you know what's exactly. funny? You're actually, I would, I would say, Carla, please don't say that. You're only encouraging a couple of listeners I've heard from who said, hey, you know, I've been listening to your show for a couple of years, but I really like this thing you're doing every day. <laughs> Can you just keep going after the quarantine? And I'm like, ah, I don't know. You got to give the people what they want. Yeah, That's what well, I'll say. Uh, but I do have to, you know, be concerned with my liver health. And um, <laughs> there's that. <laughs> so, I noticed, uh, or I know you, we've met a few times, and uh, I've read the book that you wrote with uh, Robert, but you're also, in addition to an author and a a keynote speaker, you're what's called an outsourced CMO, Chief Marketing Mm -hmm. Officer. Can you talk a little bit about what what an outsourced CMO does and maybe what the perceptions or misperceptions are of, of, uh, of that role? So what I do as an outsourced CMO is that there are companies at certain sizes who don't have a particularly sophisticated marketing program. And most of the time, it's generally designed as um, sales support proposals, things like that. And what they're looking at doing is how they can, one, look at content in a more strategic way, which Mm is, you know, as through the experiences lens, as, as my friend Robert Rose talked to you about the other day, mm-hmm. um, looking, looking at how they can differentiate themselves and one, start to tell a story that's truly different, two, start to deliver an experience that's very different, and then three, start to look at marketing's role in driving innovation in the organization with a lens of the customer. So bringing that voice of the customer from the outside in. So what I do when I work with companies is show them how to elevate marketing into a position that's not just order takers. And and I call them do me people. Can you do me a brochure? Can you do me a website? Oh, I love that. I'm stealing it. Yeah. I mean, it's because so many people, so many companies, especially if they are sales oriented, that's what they think of the marketing people. They're, you know, do me, they're the do me people. So Mm. instead of the do me people, I look at them as, you know, how do you start to change the whole dynamic of, of how the brand shows up and the story that's told and the connection that you have with customers and particularly for companies that are looking to become, have much more strategic relationships within their buyer organizations, because I find that the companies that are more sales oriented and have um, marketing, that's just really sales support. They are very um, tactical. They're generally talking to people who are lower in the organization because salespeople don't know how to create that broader, bigger, overarching story about the value that they can bring on a strategic level to their customers. And so that's what they're looking to do, you know, differentiate themselves by saying, we understand the bigger business problem that you're trying to solve. And here's how we do that. And so those are the companies that are elevating themselves and understand to do that. You have to bring marketing into the picture and they start to see marketing as a different role in the organization and more of how they start to create that experience and deliver it to the customer. Mm. And are they also a little more focused on sort of the end of the buyer journey? In other words, if they're, if they're not talking about some of the other bigger issues, but they're, are they a little more focused on answering questions that people have when they're further along? 
ge- generally those companies are, and that's what they're looking at is moving beyond just how do we work the leads at the bottom of the funnel, mm-hmm. but how do we start to build these relationships sooner? And I talk about the difference between a buyer's journey and a customer journey, because in sales organizations, they sales driven organizations, they will look at it as in what's the buyer journey and how do we start to, you know, get in front of them as soon as we can so we can move them all the way through the buyer journey. But really in a customer journey, and that's the real power that marketers have right now, especially right now, is looking at what's that customer journey because there's so many things that customers do before they ever really start to look at a brand and get into that buy ready kind of mentality. And that's the opportunity that marketing has. And that's really why we've seen such a huge um, adoption of content marketing is because these companies understand, okay, let's, let's scoot our relationship much, much sooner into a, a customer journey. And, and that's what content can do is help build that relationship, um, establish trust and get people to know each other much sooner. Um, so that when, the buyer does have a need, have an opportunity or realize that there's something that they have uh, a problem that they need to solve something that they can use buy, do or whatever to help their business to be more successful. Then they understand who's there to help them. And then they slide into that buyer journey. But most companies, um, and this, this is, this is a lot of companies, even companies that have a, a CMO position in place, they are still very buyer journey driven rather than really looking at the whole customer journey. Oh, so I see. I, okay. And, buyer and do, buyer is your, your perspective customer and the customer is, they're not paying attention to what happens after they become a customer because I was starting to confuse what you meant there. Yeah, it's really a buyer journey is more like what, what happens in the sales funnel. And a, a customer journey is what is it that they do before they even have a need and need to buy? And that's oh, the opportunity okay. to build the relationship much earlier. Okay. All right. So it's customer journey and then buyer journey. I, I, I hadn't exactly. heard of that. So okay. a buy, yeah, a buyer journey, I see it as a subset of a bigger customer journey. Oh, but buyer is after they, let's say, have intent? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. When they start to look around, who who can solve my problem? Okay. So you then uh, now I see what you're talking about. Now you want to get out there uh, before they become a buyer, and that's where the content mm-hmm. marketing works beautifully. Okay. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Because you know, after I've uh, started to have a drink, and as you can imagine, I'm really comfortable asking stupid questions. So uh, <laughs> yeah, that's one of my strengths. Any question you want. To, there yeah, you go. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Now. Uh, how I, this is always a question that's of interest to me, and I don't know about others, but how is it that you and Robert came together to decide to co-author a book? It's like asking a couple, "How did you all first meet and get married?" But <laughs> what, <laughs> I, how, I, how, I how, did, how do you decide to do a book with another author, and what what happened in your instance? It didn't involve jail. I'll tell you that. Oh, but now Neither. what Carla's talking about is that when I interviewed Robert a couple days ago, I asked him if it was true that. He first. I asked him how he first met Joe Polizzi, the founder of the Content Marketing Institute, and he told me, and it was a very nice story. And I said, "Well, I heard from Joe that you all met in jail in Mexico." <laughs> and of course, I was throwing Joe, who's you know as nice as Carla Johnson. I was throwing him way under the bus there, and it, I think it threw Robert off a little bit. But uh, <laughs> so that's why Carla. You see how Carla's getting ahead of things, you know, like she like talking about the buyer journey, the customer. She's already getting ahead of me trying to throw her under the bus with some sort of salacious tale of her being in a, a Latin American jail. But please, okay, so you didn't meet him in jail. 
I interrupted, please. Right. But we never want to let the truth get in the way of a good story. So we will say that, you know, we're, we're both marketers. Yes. But uh, it actually involved another book that I um, contributed to. I was uh, president of a Colorado chapter of a business to business marketing association at the time it was called the BMA. So I was president of the BMA Colorado chapter. And this was in, um, 2010, 2011. And as president, my charge for that year to the board is that we needed to focus on content. And in our strategic planning retreat in the summer before I, um, before the program year where we had events every month, you know, similar to the AMA, um, one of the things that somebody said is, you know, there's not really any good books specifically on B2B marketing. Maybe we should look at that. And I said, sounds great. Go look at it, report back. And it turned out the the guy who offered that up was also willing to, you know, drive the project across the, the finish line. And he did an incredible job of, um, getting a volunteer committee and, sending out a, a, um, a call for members, um, people in the B2B community in Colorado to contribute, um, briefs about what chapter they would like to, to write. And it had to be a chapter that also had a case study or a real life thing attached to it. It couldn't just be theory because we wanted to show these ideas in practice in, in B2B. And I think he had 34 people submit abstracts. And I think we went with 27 at the end of the day, um, got everybody to write them, had an editor, we got it published. So all within really nine months and we added it up by the time the, um, book was all published. We had over 5,000 volunteer hours behind this, getting mm. the, getting the project complete. And so then of course, with any great piece of content, we were looking for distribution. And I had met Joe, um, when he had been in Denver and spoke at the online marketing summit. And that's when we had met before. So I called him because I knew he had the, um, book publishing arm of, of CMI at the time in the bookstore and asked him if he would be interested in, um, either carrying it there or helping us promote it. And, and he's, he's really generous and he's always been so supportive of the BMA when we had chapters. And as we got to talking and more about, Oh, this thing called the content marketing Institute, he was telling me what he was doing. And I was telling him more about what I do about story driven, um, content marketing and how it all fits together. And he goes, you know what, you should really talk to Robert Rose. And I'm like, Oh, you know, sure. Happy to. And he sent an email and introduced us. And, um, uh, so I had a call with Robert and we just hit it off and it was nice because we had similar backgrounds, but different enough to, to keep it fun for conversations. And somewhere along the line, we, um, had a call. We're talking about, you know, what's really missing is something around story and content marketing. And that little spark was the impetus to the, to what ended up being experiences, the seventh era of marketing. Hmm. I see. Well, that's interesting. And once again, Joe Polizzi bringing people together. You know, there you go. Exactly. Yeah. That's what he does. Now, are you working on another book? I think I heard. I am working. I am just about finished with the final manuscript. And I'll tell you, this is book number 10. So I'm pretty excited to get into double digits. And this one is called Rethink Innovation. And it's about how um, what I did is I've done research and it's looking into how the world's most innovative teams come up with their ideas 
and then how they turn into these extraordinary outcomes for what they do. And it takes a look at what does innovation look like within an organization. And it's not just specific to marketing or a traditional innovation group, because there's absolutely no shortage of books on innovation when it comes to product development and design and things like that. So that kind of innovation is probably 10% of a company's function or or innovation approach. So I look at the other 90% of the organization and the people who are in the position and know their customers really, really well, teaching them a, a framework that I've discovered that these teams or people actually used to come up with an idea that's um, something new, it's something great, it's something reliable, meaning it actually has business value and and delivers um, ideally revenue impact some way. And they're able to do this over a long period of time. So consistently deliver these ideas. And then looking at like, what does innovation look like if you're a single person in a company? Like how can you start to make a difference? Then bubbles up into how does that affect the team dynamics and how people align? And then you know, we all know what, you know, corporate culture is like. So if companies are wanting to become more innovative, then how do you start to look look at it from that perspective if you're part of the C-suite? Because really, if you're ever going to be innovative as an organization, you have to reverse engineer it back to that individual level, what I call a citizen innovator, and start there and then work your way back up to the corporate culture level. Yeah, and it seems like innovation has more to do with um, uh, introducing a lot of change and, and change to culture. And I'm wondering if that is overlooked when, when companies are pounding the table saying, we need to be more innovative. <laughs> you know, a- absolutely. Because it's, you know, what, what somebody says they want and then what they're willing to say yes to when that opportunity is right in front of them is is, you know, night and day, you and I know what it's like to work inside some of these companies. And mm-hmm. you don't become innovative by just pounding the table and saying, <laughs> go forth and innovate. You know, that's it's ridiculous. And, and it was interesting because I put a posted a question on LinkedIn a few months ago about um, is management the enemy of innovation? And I was taken back by the vitriol that came back from people who responded saying, absolutely, like the very people who say they want it are the worst, uh, you know, killers of great ideas or people's inspiration or motivation. And it's all um, ego-driven and it's political and, and all of these things. And so for people who really, because I, be- I believe that people want to go to work and do their best and bring out that natural talent that they have in them. And that's that's going to involve change somehow. And they want to feel proud of the work that they do. And they want to feel that they're making a difference. And they want to have some sort of tangible evidence to see that they can affect change. Now, you don't have to be a vice president or a C-suite person to be able to affect change. You just need to understand how to come up with an idea that has an impact on the business, how to pitch it, and then how to move forward with it. Now, it you don't have to be a senior level person at all to be able to have ideas that affect change. I was talking to Jeff Perkins. He's the chief marketing officer for Park Mobile in Atlanta, and they have the app that a lot of parking um, facilities in major metropolitan areas have where you can... Um, pull into the parking slot instead of going and putting money in the box in the, on the, um, 
in the parking lot, you just pull up the app and put what space you're in and put in your a license plate number and you can pay like that. You can also, um, some cities have it where you can pay for your meters like that. So if you're not quite back to your car and your meter's going to run out, you can plug the meter, so to speak, from your phone and not, not have to go back and not risk having a ticket. Um, but one of the things that he said came out of some of the innovation work that they do is that there was a woman in finance and she was just so frustrated because there was a month in process that took I think almost 40 hours of her team's time. So during an innovation week that they have every um, about every six months, she taught herself how to program in a specific language. She took all of the things that needed to be done. She programmed, automated it, and took 40 hours of work from her team. And it's now about a two-minute process. So that to me is big innovation because she's able to make a change that's really outside of her, what you would expect her area of expertise in accounting. Now she's teaching herself a programming language, but it makes a big difference and, and has a, you know, a strong financial impact on the company. Now, if you can take that and you can disperse that type of, um, idea generation, uh, motivation, inspiration, willingness to step forward with these ideas across the other 90% of the company that's not traditionally involved in innovation, you have a tremendous opportunity to be um, a company that moves faster, um, uh, is able to, you know, to cut a, a lot of the dead weight, whether that's, um, you know, processes, whether it's money that's wasted and you're in a much better financial position, um, customer responsiveness position to handle things that come along. And you see that in companies right now, the difference between how companies are responding to what's going on in, in their industry with, um, customers and things like that with with covid right now yeah and i i think uh, i hope that that company has uh, deeply rewarded that person for such amazing initiative that's lightning in a in a jar but in ron tight's book i interviewed him about recently his book is called think do say he was talking about innovation and he was talking about the other side of that coin where companies talk a good game about wanting to be innovative but uh, that's not always the case, and he actually proposed a few uh, ideas about, you know, how to think about innovation. So that wasn't the entire mm-hmm. focus of his book, but that was, you know, it was interesting. He was talking about how actually, you know, they, 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 a lot of companies say they, they reward it, but they, they kill it. They punish it. And it's, Absolutely. Yeah, for organizational yeah. changes. So, Carl, what do you think is going to happen uh, to our marketing and sales world uh, that's going to come out of this uh, COVID experience. And I ask that without implying that it's going to be over soon. I just, you know, this whole experience, what what do you think are the changes that are going to maybe stick around? I think, I think one of the things is that people are going to start to really look at how they balance that digital and in-person experience. So I think there, there will be much more of a focus on, um, you know, look how well we did with not, being in touch, you know, face to face and look how much we got done. The sun still came up every day. Um, you know, people work together and, and we were collaborating. So I, I think that will happen at, you know, more work from home, more remote work. I think that will be at a higher level when, when we're allowed to go back to offices, but I don't think it's 
going to stick to the level, nearly the level that it is now, of course, or that some people predict it will, because I believe that we as people have um, a genetic need to be together as people. And there is goodness that comes from not having to get into a car and commute every day to work. And, you know, I'll be honest, (laughs) even taking the time to shower, you know, if you can just get up and just walk down the hall and sit down at your desk, you know, with your cup of coffee and, you know, in your bathrobe or whatever, there's not saying there's anything wrong with that. And I should add that taking a shower was not a requirement for Carla to be interviewed here (laughs) on Authors in Quarantine getting cocktails, but that's the kind of the way that Carla over delivers. Okay. She's over prepared. (laughs) She's very competitive. Do not cross this woman. No, I'm kidding. Or you'll be going to Ecuador before you know it. Yeah, exactly. But, but, you know, I think especially when we come, when we start looking at how do we come up with great ideas? You know, I was just on a a workshop about, um, creativity before we got together to talk and it is a significantly different dynamic to try to bring energy to a group of people through a zoom call or some other sort of online environment than it is in person. So are there things that just make sense that you could now do that or work from home and remote that perhaps companies said we needed to have you there in an office before. Oh, absolutely. I absolutely believe that. But will a majority of work still happen from home rather than in an office and people coming together? You know, I don't think so because I think it really will affect people's productivity because of the dynamics of, of being together with each other, just as people. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to see how it's going to, reshuffle the deck, but I agree. And I was actually, I've mentioned this a few times on some of these uh, other episodes of marketers and excuse me, author can't get the name right. Authors in quarantine, getting cocktails, this book called, can you hear me? And I'm going to interview Nick Morgan about it next week. And it's all about communicating in a virtual world, <laughs> which is a, oh, I got a hold of the book. Yeah. And, and I thought, Oh boy, I've got to get him on right away. Cause I'm getting so many questions about that. And in the book, he explains, uh, you know, the virtual is just not as good as in person. And just like you said, he explains all the science behind why we must be near other people. It works, I want to say, 10 times better. In other words, when you're talking to somebody, you are able to see their eyes, their facial expression, their body language, and you're even the way you hear them, it's using much more of your uh, ear muscles, not ear muscles, but your mm-hmm. ability, all the ranges of, of, uh, of sound. And I didn't appreciate. And so he, and he he even talks about how if you have a virtual relationship with someone, it's really fragile. If there's just some way you can start it or at least uh, bolster it by getting together with them in person, it works much, much better. So I I'm, I guess I'm a little dismissive of anyone that thinks this is the way it's going to go. And I haven't heard anybody say that, oh, no, it's all, it's all going to be digital. Unless maybe it's a person at a corporation that wants to refuse to let people buy airplane tickets and go yeah. <laughs> go to conferences. Yeah, but it's sort of like uh, I was talking to a, a chapter, I was doing an impromptu webinar for an American Marketing Association chapter in Birmingham the other day, and they, uh, uh, they were talking about how uh, they were dropping the price of the membership. And I just, it occurred to me that membership in an organization like that. And they're a really strong chapter. And I spoke there last fall and I had so much fun and I, I absolutely loved it. 
and loved them. And uh, I think their membership, if I had to predict, I, I bet it's going to come roaring back because people are really starved <laughs> to get together and just meet other people and, and spend time and, you know, have some, um, some experiences with them. And I'm not using that experiences word because I'm talking to Carla Johnson. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, but, you know, when I was part of the, the BMA and I was chapter president at the time, you know, we were still very much affected by the 2009 economic crash. Mm -hmm. And that's what we saw is that our attendance grew, um, people's interest in helping and volunteering and reaching out and getting together really spiked because it was that sense of, I want to be together. I, I want to be with people like me who understand me. And, you know, however you define that tribe in that situation, it was an association around B2B marketing companies or tribes too. You know, you, you go to work at a company because, you know, at the foundation, you believe what they believe and you believe you can help support that bigger um, message or cause or whatever. And along with that, you want to be around other people who mm -hmm. are like that because um, it can be lonely working from home all day, even if you have other people physically around you or you can go out the door and see your neighbor or whatever else. It, you, we need that just as humans to be able to have these tribes that we can get together with physically. Yeah, you know, we aren't really that different in terms of our brains and our deep-seated uh, desires and anxieties from our ancestors who lived in caves. In caves, uh, you know, uh, people are uh, they they want to avoid harm. They want to they want to be loved. They want to be with other people. They want to be social. It's never going to change. And actually, you know, we're in this modern world. But when you think about it, in the span of human life. Uh, humanity <laughs> this modern world has only come about like in the last minute so exactly yeah <laughs> exactly but it seems forever for us right? yes yes that's right the, the only world we know well uh carla it was so great to meet you i guess the last time was at content marketing world and i say that because after i interviewed robert about experiences and it was in 2015 i think he was the 12th uh guest on the show and tomorrow i think i published episode 275 or something like that. Um, wow. I met with you. Well, you know, you just keep doing it. Um, <laughs> but um, I, I, that's when I, I met you, uh, you know, and, and connected with you. And the next thing I knew, uh, I was able to help facilitate getting you to come here to speak to the American Marketing Association. And I was so excited about that. And then I wasn't able to attend. <laughs> So. I know. I missed you. I hung out in your own backyard. It, it, I do remember that. It was a great, great group of people. They yeah. were really a lot of fun. Yeah. I think it was out at the Virginia Beach Convention Center, if I'm not mistaken. But I was just, it was. I was oh, like, oh yeah. man, the one person <laughs> that I want to go see. <laughs> of all the times yeah. for our paths. And they said, be, thanks, Douglas. Know. That was really great. Like, you know, <laughs> too bad you couldn't be there. I was like, oh, <laughs> dang it. So at any rate, well, I'll continue to stalk you and try to find ways to, you know, see now I'm making up for it because I, I, I missed you that one time and now I want to see you speak and, and all that sort oh, of thing. Oh, I appreciate that. <laughs> right. So, well, listen, Carla, it's uh, great catching up with you and I appreciate you uh, being here on this uh, hopefully limited time series of authors in quarantine getting cocktails. And I hope that you and your uh, family continue to stay safe and healthy and insane if possible. Oh, thank you so much. I, I loved being here on your show and it's always great having a conversation with you. Thank you. Despacito.
Okay. 